Even if you're on the right track, you'll still get run over if you just sit there. Good quote by Will Rogers as it relates to today's talk about future technology and how we plan for it. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode 56, and this week we are talking with Amy Webb, the founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute. They are an amazing organization that pays attention to future coming trends, and they just released their 2016 trends of 81 notable things that are coming uh, up and intersecting with the market. The reason we care about this is because, you know what, data and technology in the nonprofit world is where we spend a lot of our time focused on. And we think if if you're planning for the future of your organization's survival beyond just technology, an actual impact that this really does matter to keep an eye on uh, what the industry is doing and where it's moving. So hopefully you get some ideas out of some of these trends. We tackle a lot of things, including augmented reality, hacking, blockchains, robots, and genomic editing, just to name a few. So don't worry if it overwhelms you. The idea is to start getting you to think about uh, what's coming down the road. And even if you're on the right track, making sure you don't get run over by the train. All right, let's jump into this great interview with Amy. And I'm here today with Amy Webb, the founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute. Amy, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. Wow, so you've been busy. I came across uh, the most amazing tech trend report I think I have ever seen. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what the Future Today Institute is and what this tech trends report is about? Sure. So the Future Today Institute is a interdisciplinary research organization. We look at near and emerging trends in technology. Um, But from our vantage point, technology intersects with every part of our personal and professional lives. And there really is no industry that, that technology does not in some way intersect with. Um, So from our point of view, the sort of things that we're looking at are applicable across all industries. And for us, uh, spotting a trend is really just part of our forecasting process. So my my organization, we are futurists. Uh, We professionally study and model uh, using data um, the future. There is no oracle that we look into, <laughs> and, uh, and and we are very much focused on the sort of practical, social, social and ethical implications of all of the technology that uh, that surrounds us. And so we advise a lot of Fortune 500 companies. We work with lots of different parts of the government here in the United States, but we also advise governments overseas. Uh, and we do uh, a ton of work with foundations and universities and nonprofits as well. So for the past 11 years, um, as long as my company has been around, we've been uh, producing an annual report primarily for our clients. And I want to say about 10 years ago, we decided to make parts of that report available for the general public. So every December, this report um, is released and every year it seems to grow. And it, and it basically is a snapshot view of some interesting trends that we're looking at Um, that we think will be important for the next 12 months. And the important thing to note here is that, unlike I think a lot of other trend reports, which tends to be more about coining new and interesting terms, um, our trends, 
they're, they're not like words that are even necessarily not, not a single word that you can easily repeat. They tend to be, you know, they're concepts. Um, and, and from our vantage point, a trend is just one waypoint on route to the future. They help us understand how things are changing. Um, and that's why it's important to track them. And, and that's a big part of the reason why we make that report public. So it's, you know, it's one tool that we hope lots of organizations, you know, all organizations are using to sort of keep track of what's coming, you know, over the horizon. It's really interesting because obviously as a, you know, as a leader of a company or an industry, you can look internally. This is an effective way of looking externally. Can you talk about how this is practically then used, knowing that, you know what, here's some crazy things coming from autonomous driving or VR? I think it depends on the industry and organization. You know, one of the challenges for most organizations is that they are either focused so narrowly on just what they believe to be their individual segment that they tend to miss um, and misconnecting the dots, you know, around them. So good example of this is uh, BlackBerry. You know, BlackBerry had been so focused on its core product that it missed changes in human behavior and, you know, Wi-Fi and like lots of other things and ultimately missed the advent of phones with no buttons, right? So there's a good example of a, of a company missing lots of opportunities to stay afloat, uh, you know, and, and then there are other cases where we advise lots of different arts organizations as well, you know, and, and they're narrowly focused oftentimes on development and just sort of trying to stay afloat. Uh, and in the meantime, they miss opportunities to engage younger audiences they also, I think a lot of arts organizations misunderstand the relationship that younger people have to philanthropy. Um, and so the report is really meant to stimulate that thought. It's a way of helping folks see the world beyond their office doors uh, and hopefully provides, you know, it provides some inspiration um, and, and a framework to help them think a little differently and because the trends report is usually very robust and has lots of different concrete areas, you know, we, we just know because we people tell us after they've downloaded it and read it, um, that it, it winds up informing their strategy over the year. So let's let's dive dive into this idea. You know, you're uh, you're a futurist. You're you're thinking about what's coming. What is the methodology for understanding this? Like, a, are you using like a Delphi model to ask experts? Are you um, surveying large amounts of, of data, past trends? What is your methodology for for coming up with these bold predictions? So uh, we have a six part methodology that we've been refining, uh, and I it's mine, and I've been working on it for more than a decade. Um, and essentially, it starts with taking a trip to the fringe, as I like to call it, and trying to look for the unusual suspects. So, you know, by the time that you read something on a website um, or it turns up in a newspaper, the wheels are sort of already in motion and it becomes difficult to separate what is trend from what is trendy. And again, our, you know, from our vantage point, a trend is a data point that we're tracking. It's not, um, it's not a shiny object. It's not some cool made up word uh, that makes for a great headline. It represents a fundamental change in human behavior. So we are looking at things like pre-publication academic research, 
we have a, we've built several tools that help us crawl different databases to look for information. So we collect enormous amounts of data, and from there, the second step of the process has to do with pattern recognition and looking for uh, patterns uh, within that information. Um, and the, I, we built a model for that called Cipher, and it's an acronym that stands that uh, stands for different types of um, specific patterns that we're looking for. And by the end of that part of the process, we have what we call a trend candidate. So this is where a lot of people stop and, and a lot of business leaders we found, you know, and organization leaders, they stop after they think they've found something. And what they really should do next is step three of our process, which is to interrogate and rip that idea to shreds. Um, and basically, you know, get what, you know, this hypothesis that we have, what would need to, what would need to happen in order for it to be true, right? And we poke at it and poke at it and poke at it. And if at the end of that process, we still believe, you know, we, we haven't poked as, you know, we haven't poked any real holes in it, then it's probably a trend. You know, it's, it's something we can bank on. But then we have to think about timing. So you had mentioned internal and external at the beginning. The things that catapult a technology forward have to do with internal tech developments. So, you know, what a company internally is building but it also has to do with external influences. So, you know, Uber, for example, can build tremendously advanced self-driving technology as a sort of logistics platform. But if the federal government hands down a whole bunch of regulations, then it kind of doesn't matter what Uber's developing if it never actually gets used, right? So, so that's where, in order to understand the timing and trajectory of a trend, you have to look at both of those things. And then we, we build and map out scenarios. And our scenarios, again, are very data-driven. Um, and we use different emotive framings. So we have pessimistic scenarios and pragmatic scenarios. And then we have a system where we identify how our, our sort of confidence level, we have a risk matrix that we use. Uh, and then finally, at the end of all of that, is where we would be able to build strategy around that idea. And then the final step of the process is one more time to go back and again, just poke all kinds of holes uh, and make sure that that strategy, that trend and everything else are future-proofed. So it's a, it's a pretty intensive, um, you know, it's a pretty intensive process. It is much, much more detailed than asking some experts. You know, the, the Delphi system, which was developed um, in the 40s through 60s, I think served a, a very valuable purpose, but the world has evolved and become much more sophisticated, as have the tools and the technologies that we use. Um, and I, I think that getting a handle on what's coming so that you can take advantage of it rather than be taken advantage, you know, so that you can take advantage of <laughs> yeah. it rather than it taking advantage of you, right? Um, it just requires a level of uh, commitment and thinking that those, those older models don't accomplish. Yeah, that's that's really excellent, and and you've come up with 80, 81 of these trends uh, currently. That's all. I mean, it's a lot to digest. And so, as we're thinking about it from the that nonprofit perspective, let's say an arts organization, you know, which of these trends really are jumping out to you when we're thinking with our you know our nonprofit hat on? And just to sort of clarify, so the trends that are in the report are the trends that we make public, um, but these are it's definitely not comprehensive. So we're you know, we're looking at far more than than what's there, um, as you know. But as it relates to you know nonprofits and people sort of communicating their message and their value and their mission, you know, and I think that there are some communications trends that are worth noting. So 
at this point, I think the entire universe knows about Pokemon Go. I'm at level two right now. What level are you at? I am at uh, not playing level. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you know you're going to pay for it in the long term. Got to catch them all. Well, um, got to catch them all. You know, I, uh, I I will tell you why I don't play. Um, I have I have been run into now on uh, so in New York City. There's a lot of people playing, and I've been elbowed several times. And somebody else just like stepped on me, and it's uh, it's made me feel slightly less affinity towards the game. That- it's a dangerous, a dangerous place, and I'm sorry about bumping into you as I came out of the subway today. Um, that's definitely my fault. But we're talking about augmented reality as one of these trends, right? That's right. So um, you know, AR is uh, for those who aren't familiar with it. It's um, overlaying digital images and and. Uh, interfaces as a layer on top of our physical world and you use a screen in order to help you see what's there. AR is not new. Uh, It was actually invented in the 90s by somebody who was trying to solve a problem on a production line. Um, It was was actually a a solution to an engineering problem, but you know, it, it, it exists today because of the advent of our mobile devices. So, you know, what's interesting I think about, so Pokemon Go may not initially have a direct connection, for example, to a orchestra, right? Um, a, a city's orchestra, but, um, or, or another, you know, small, smaller scale philanthropic organization. Interestingly, I think a lot of people, especially in marketing, are rushing to get their businesses and their associations and their nonprofits listed as stops or gyms. Um, and again, for those who are not players. Um, these are places not just where characters are, but uh, where, where you can go and do additional things with the characters. So essentially, if, you, if you're able to get yourself on a map, it's a good way to increase foot traffic. And I, and I think that, that that hype will subside. But what I think is more interesting is it will act, you know, people will become acclimated to using their phones in this way. And there are tremendous opportunities for arts organizations. There are existing AR platforms and one way to help people understand your organization better is to inform them, right? So let's say you're in the, I don't know, in the city of Chicago and you were able to hold your phone up um, and get more information about the symphony, the Chicago Symphony, um, maybe see a video. Uh, you scan the building where they play and you get some quick videos of um, their latest performance or you get you know, a quick video explaining something about the orchestra you know, or you're able to identify different buildings or identify different things. You know, I think I think this becomes a gateway drug in a way to be able to use AR technology, even though it's been around and even though there were plenty of apps that did this five, six years ago, um, we just never reached critical mass um, because people hadn't developed those behaviors yet. Uh, Pokemon Go, if it continues on its trajectory, will start to change our behaviors. And again, we become acclimated to, to having our phones up. And after all the cool headlines and the funny headlines about people running into things have subsided, I think we'll wind up with um, a critical mass of behavior that's changed and people who are more likely to use AR, which would directly benefit um, you know, nonprofits. Yeah, and so one of the takeaways there is making sure you don't ignore things like making sure your business is registered and in these public spaces such as Google Maps with photos and and identifications because as these things, as you say, pop up and are used as open data sets, they're more likely to be destinations for discovery in this case. 
Well, and I think the other thing that this informs us, and perhaps the more important thing, is that it's not just about getting a business or a space registered. You know, one of the things that I find lacking, um, you know, is that a lot of people who run organizations trust that the younger members of their organizations who are using Snapchat, or in this case, Pokemon Go, um, will sort of just keep them filled in on what they need to know. And there are assumptions made that the technology has passed them by, it's too challenging, and therefore they won't use it. The people who are making strategic decisions about their organizations um, need to have a basic grasp on what all of this technology is. And you don't necessarily have to become a level five Pokemon master and you know spend hours a day throwing balls at animated creatures. But you at least have to understand that the game exists, what the game is, why people are playing it. Um, and I would argue the same is true for something like Snapchat. Uh, Snapchat is wildly engaging. And uh, there's a wonderful use case for Snapchat as a great marketing vehicle uh, for smaller organizations and, and philanthropic you know, organizations and art or, arts organizations. But the people who are running those businesses have to have some experience with these technologies that they have a, a good strategic handle on what to do with them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump to another trend. Uh, open season time, spin the wheel of fortune. What is another trend that pops out to you that you think is particularly relevant uh, to the nonprofit sector, you know, staying, staying with arts organizations, perhaps, or art education organizations? This is actually something that affects everybody and nobody thinks enough about, and that is uh, hacking. One of the great challenges, I think, for many organizations, especially those in philanthropy, is that transactions, for the most part, are a requirement, right? So if you're either an arts organization or you're a philanthropic organization, to some extent, you're relying on a transaction to keep the organization going. Um, when those transactions are online, what, what I have noticed is that each, especially arts within the arts uh, sector, each community seems to rely on one or two or three, but usually one or two trusted vendors to do all that transaction work. And since there's very little competition, there's oftentimes not a lot of impetus within that those vendor groups to keep their technology ironclad, totally up to date, running a you know running ahead of everybody else. And you know the the organizations that rely on these services can wind up experiencing a lot of problems as a result. So things like, you know, people, if, if these systems aren't totally shored up, um, you, you wind up with hackers stealing information, you know, employee lists, you know, and, and it's not anymore just to trade that information. So they're not actually after credit card numbers anymore because they're too hard to use. They're after personal information that they can ransom back. And it may all of this may seem totally insignificant. And if you're at an arts organization, you may assume that this could never possibly impact you because you're too small to matter. But in this day and age, you know, size doesn't matter. And nobody is too small to become a, a victim. So you really do need to stay vigilant. And, and that's only gonna, that's a trend that's gonna continue, unfortunately, for the next few years. Man, I feel like we're in a scared straight program right now. Hide, you, hide your kids. Yeah, now there is um, there there are some potential changes coming. So you've probably heard of blockchain or Bitcoin. And without getting too technical on what that is, um, 
Bitcoin is that digital currency that that you've probably heard people talking about, and especially within reference to um, people trading for stuff online, pay, trying to pay for things that might be illegal online. But the underlying technology uh, is called the blockchain, and that's a, tra- a transparent uh, public ledger. And, and essentially what all this means is it could, in the very near future, mean the elimination of passwords and the elimination of intermediaries and um, making a lot of our transactions much more safe and secure. But we're not quite there yet. Yeah, we have a, a little ways to go for for that. Anything interesting uh, when we start talking about wearables or Internet of Things as it relates to social impact? Hey, of robots doing crazy things, and oftentimes that has to do with defense and warfare. But uh, if you look at Japan, because of the way that the population is aging, you know, there are all different kinds of robots and applications of robots that are really meant to help communities in need. And one of the biggest areas of development has been around um, the aging community. Japan, a quarter of Japan's population is is going to be considered elderly, or I think is already considered elderly, and and that um, that there aren't enough younger people being born. Um, so so the whole sort of population uh, pyramid is out of whack. Anyhow, so there's a lot of really interesting development, um, especially by companies like SoftBank, uh, which you know, which you know, all, all different types of robotics and robotic tools that'll help augment, you know, humans. So think of devices that you can wear. Maybe you've lost your grip strength. Um, that will help you grasp onto things a little bit better, or you know, robots that will that can be companions. Um, you know, all different kinds of things. But that also eventually extends out to robotic systems that uh, help create correct dosages for medications. You know, so there's there's a lot of different possibilities and and not just for, you know, one community, but for potentially lots of different communities. Yeah, that's exciting. The, the health implications also. I've seen Parkinson's organizations uh, start using wearables for uh, tracking user behavior and, and impact of medicine and, and symptoms as well. Yep. Uh, moving to one that's interesting to me, uh, because I think virtual reality is something that has been around for a while. But when we get to that, you know, uh, adoption curve, when price meets uh, performance meets the the mainstream, I think we're getting close here. And I'm interested when we talk about potentially like education. If I'm working in that field, when are we going to see? Are we going to see? Uh, what will the impacts be? You think of uh, the impacts of virtual reality, say on say on education or even art. Right. So from our point of view, VR works for education when it's a an experience versus a lesson. Um, so, for example, you know, trying to create courses that are meant to be educational, unless it's some kind of specific training program where you have to learn how to use a tool. You know, we, we just see over and over and over again that the gamification, like just the, the fact that the word gamification even exists should tell us something. Right. Because. Anything that's been gamified is inherently not fun. Um, you know, games are built. If, if you talk to any game designers, and we've spent a lot of time with game designers, the most popular games, you know, the the game fundamentals, what make those, what makes those games so much fun, um, is pretty much at odds with the fundamentals for, you know, learning. Um, which is not to say that you can't learn something playing a game, but if the point of the game is to force people to learn something, you're not going to get high engagement. 
So instead, experiential learning um, seems to make more sense. So for example, and, and this is definitely not around, you know, very near term, but in the slightly, slightly farther ahead, you know, there, there are lots of examples that we've seen where you could be sitting in your living room wearing a headset and join somebody else in another room uh, and suddenly you have people from around the world all appearing to sit together in one space, right? And uh, in, in that way, you may have a teacher teaching a course, but it gives you a sensation that you are physically in a space with other people interacting with them. Um, you know, or you could transport yourself to the UN and sit in on, you know, a UN meeting, right? Um, so in these, in those cases, that's sort of experiential learning and that can be incredibly powerful. Um, and I think that we'll start to see eventually more opportunities moving into that space, but any sort of game or VR experience that's been designed to teach kids, you know, anything from literacy to manners to empathy, you know, again, it's just, there, there's some inherent flaws with that assumption and how games that are truly popular and successful are built. Yeah. You can look no further than games like Minecraft and the, the real raw lack of game dynamics and more about freedom um, and presenting an experience to young people mm-hmm. is, is an interesting model to look at. In here you have 10 questions of how to relate these trends back to your organization uh, as, a, as a sort of interesting framework. You know, it seems like a lot of them, not to oversimplify, but is this going to put us out of business or can we take advantage of this? Is this something that is an opportunity or is it a true threat? You know, as you look at some of these trends, some, you know, stand out a lot more in, in that side. So, you know, for example, you know, genome editing, uh, that is, you know, probably a little further out than the, the near term, but uh, you can imagine that impacting a lot of health organizations or something like autonomous driving impacting if I'm at, you know, mad mothers against drunk driving, that might be something that just doesn't exist. How do you think about that, those two spheres of, is this putting us out of business or can we take advantage of it? Okay, so here, here's, here's why it's important uh, for everybody to be thinking about trends that seemingly don't have anything to do with their day-to-day operations. So I was just in a um, closed door meeting with the Deputy Secretary of State, one of the Under Secretaries of State, the head of the National Academies of Science, head of National Academies of Medicine, uh, and some other people on uh, the future of uh, genomic editing and something called gene drive and something called CRISPR. And the, the purpose for that meeting was to talk about the future implications of gene editing and foreign policy. These two things may not seem to have anything to do with each other, but if you start to connect the dots, it becomes clear why somebody like the Secretary of State should care very deeply about developments in the gene editing space, and I'll explain why. So let's say that you know one of one of the great positive things that gene editing already can do um, is to create uh, crops that are that that produce more yield. So you wind up, for example, in a lot of parts, a lot of parts of the United States with um, their food deserts, uh, especially in urban areas. So if you were able to take some of the dilapidated structures, turn them into small urban farms using some of this new technology, you know, you're able to produce in one city block, for example, a tremendous amount of fresh food, a huge amount that it could take, you know, in traditional farming, it could take an entire field, right, to, to produce. So you wind up with 
being able to feed in a meaningful way more people. Well, if you do this at scale and suddenly you've got you know, robust crop production in much smaller areas and you're able to do it, for example, with less water, among other things, suddenly we become less reliant on companies like India and Brazil and Vietnam, you know, and elsewhere, which which provide produce for us. Um, if you start taking away crops, crop importing, you know, and subsidies from those countries that, you know, after over time, you potentially create political instability because a huge source of their GDP and their income, you know, has, has gone away. And now you wind up with devastated populations, you know, somewhere else around the world, which creates instability, which could, you know, lead to all kinds of other problems, which is why the State Department needs to care deeply about what's happening with, you know, genomic editing. And so that's sort of the, one of the points of, of the trend report and of these 10 questions is to help stimulate that thought. Because in reality, I bet you I could make the case for why 70 to 80% of the trends in this report do directly in some way impact every organization, you know, regardless of who they are and what they do. Uh, and the challenge is that when you're dealing with the day-to-day operations of your business, it's hard to see beyond the confines of your office. You have a hard time looking for these dots to connect. Um, but it's vitally important that, that everybody, you know, does that. I love the approach. Uh, another question, you know, you mentioned robots. You were talking about future impacts. We're talking about, you know, uh, the autonomy of systems and, and self-driving. You brought up you brought up Uber. I mean, it, it seems like to those that are paying attention, there is a self-driving truck coming, driving right at the economy with regard to employment. Have you done any thinking or what is your feeling on that uh, as it relates to the work you've done and how you talk to companies? Right. So there's... Um there's a lot of discussion right now on the future of work, and especially as it relates to uh, automation and the economy. And I, I will say this, um, I'm not an economist, so this is not something that I study with the kind of economics-based rigor. I mean, I have a background in economics, but I'm not one, I'm not a professional ec- economist. So I, I don't have my own data, right? Um, and I haven't really studied others' uh, data on this. but. You know, I will say that throughout our history, um, there's always there have always been many explosions and panics. And, you know, every time there's been the advent of any new technology, you know, computers helped to obviate the 1950s secretary. Plows obviated the need for, you know, humans uh, working in their fields. You know, at, at every point along the way, um, you know, computers obviated um, operators. You know, we, we've always had... Um, disruption, you know, and, and this conversation has sort of been ongoing. I think the key difference now is that our economy hasn't been as robust over the past, you know, since the tech bubble burst, and, and we've had some other issues, and they're global crises. Um, and so this advancement in automation happens to be coming within the same time as our economy not being super robust and having, you know, some of these other global crises happening uh, simultaneously. So, you know, I, I don't think that there's a robot apocalypse coming that's going to take away everybody's jobs, but I do think that there are plenty of technologies that will take away the roles of intermediaries. So people who are bank tellers probably aren't, you know, those jobs are probably going to be gone uh, in the not so distant future, you know, but, but robots aren't going to take all the jobs. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not somebody who thinks that way. 
Not not a chicken little on that one. Okay. All right. So as we move uh, move toward the end, you know, there's 81 trends here. There's so much to think about. Let's say, you know, the nonprofits listening could spend an hour with an exercise and your deck. How would you structure that? What would you have them do? So we, we actually produce this report every year. And then the next one, uh, so it's July. The next one will be going out in December. You know, and I think the best thing to do uh, would be to, to take a look at those 10 questions and to spend an hour brainstorming answers to them. And, you know, to do it in a, in a real productive way, which is to say everybody's ideas get put on a board, regardless of what they are, um, and to let you, you know, and to sort of see where those answers take you. And I think the other key piece of advice is, so we, as an organization, we advise mostly senior leadership, and we oftentimes will sit alongside research and development teams. And I think that there's a sort of a business trend in putting together innovation teams within organizations. And the problem doing that, I think, is that it limits the conversation to just a few people. So I think a smart organization would spend an hour, spend that hour with this trends report and those 10 questions, but rather than it just being senior leadership or the tech team or the the younger people, to, to try to create a big swath of uh, representative talent from around the organization and to have all those different people in the room, somebody from HR, uh, depending on what the organization is, somebody from lots of different departments and also not just the senior leadership, but, but lots of different people. And the reason is because the, the sort of wider the worldview and scope um, that you've got when going through an exercise like this, I think that the more informative it will wind up being. Couldn't agree more. All right, we have our homework. Amy, help us. How how do people find you? How do people help you? Uh, give us a quick uh, quick idea of how to connect. Sure. So we are at futuretodayinstitute.com, and uh, more about who we are and what we do is there. We tweet. You know, we're on all the usual social media. Uh, so we're on Twitter at FTI, and I'm uh, Amy Webb uh, on most social media channels. But you know, we're. Our, my personal goal in all of this is uh, to make sure that 30 years from now, I'm I'm not looking back with regret on the year 2016, wishing that we would all have been more forward-thinking. So my goal is to get everybody to to use what you know the, the things that we do to use our research, but also to start thinking more like us um, and to start thinking like a futurist because I think ultimately that'll make the whole world a better place. I love it. All right, Amy, thank you so much for your time. I obviously pepper you with questions about the future indefinitely, but you created this wonderful wonderful report for us. So thank you so much. Sure thing. That was fantastic. I really liked, for me, the point where Amy differentiates trends and what is trendy. You know, this idea of a, a trend being the underlying technology such as augmented reality versus the trendy element, which right now is Pokemon Go. No big deal. I'm level 15. Just to, you know, make sure I know how it works. But that's the point. Pokemon will come and go. However, augmented reality is very real as it's going to be integrated with more and more devices that add this cognitive layer onto the world that we see and that we interact with. So I'd encourage you, if you're at a nonprofit, you know, social impact startup, and you're doing that five or 10 year planning phase, don't ignore the types of technologies that are going to be arising during this time frame. Think about the way they're going to impact your stakeholders. For instance, if you're dealing 
with maybe, say, the issue of drunk driving, consider the way the driverless cars are going to be impacting you. Consider in medical fields the you know rapid innovations in genomic editing. Uh, there's so much coming, and it can be overwhelming. However, the one sure thing is, even if you happen to be on the right track towards social good, you'll still get hit by that train if you're not paying attention to what's coming. So, lots of homework. You know where to find the resources. I encourage you to go to uh, our episode 56 to find that trends report look through it you know what throw away half of it but pay attention to the points that matter because i think it would be time well spent as always very fun geeking out with you and see you next time take care this has been using the whole whale for more resources on today's show please visit wholewhale.com podcast and consider following us on twitter at whole whale and thanks for joining us As always, this week's music interlude and intro music from Greg Thomas. You can find him online, gregthomasmusic.org. Perfect background beats for whatever you're trying to put together. Go check him out. Seriously, do it.